it's a good chance that a lot of us have asked the question at one time or another in our life, why me? Maybe not about bad things in particular, but in, in a different way of why me. And if you have, I assure you that you are not the first and probably most certainly will not be the last person to ask God why he would want to have a relationship with them. Throughout the ages, people have wondered how and why a God so magnificent could want to have anything to do with us when we're so imperfect. If we're honest, we probably have wondered that our, maybe our lack of gratitude, our short-sightedness, our selfishness, our disobedience toward God makes him want to just turn his back on us completely, even though we're his greatest creation. David, the psalm writer and the king of Israel, recognized this very idea and wrote about it specifically. David was not the author of all of the psalms that we have in the Bible, but the one we're going to look at today, Psalm 8, is attributed to David. And I want us to start by reading Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. It's easy for us, knowing that what David did as he grew up, it's easy for us to imagine him as a shepherd, laying possibly out in the field in the middle of the night while he's watching over his sheep, with these countless stars and the moon shining brightly above him. And through all of this, as he lays there and he sees all these magnificent things, he declares the majesty of God's name. It seemed that David was so aware of the things around him. And when you read the things that David wrote, you can tell that he was very aware of the creation that, was, that surrounded him everywhere he looked. David saw the splendor of God, but it seems that it was especially God's glory in that starry night that caused such a sense of awe that's evident in this psalm that we're reading in Psalm 8. In view of God's creation, how could David call it anything but excellent? How could David call it anything but majestic? And the word majestic that's used here can be translated as, as glorious or powerful or delightful. And it seemed to David that there just weren't sufficient words to declare the greatness of God. And that's why he said, How majestic is your name above all the earth? I just don't even know what to say. I'm just going to say that you're, you're greater than everything that's, that's around me in all of creation. But David recognized that in all of God's greatness, his overwhelming greatness, that God can be content. Look at this in verse 2. God can be content with the praises of children and infants. His majesty the majesty of his name speaks for itself. And was what David was saying here, that God doesn't have to have just the rich and powerful to proclaim his name. Because God is secure in his identity. He's secure in who he is. It's enough for him for just the little ones to praise him. If you ever wonder whether or not, whether or not it really matters whether we take the opportunity or make the opportunity to praise God, go back and read this passage in verse 8, if you ever question that. Jesus himself quoted this passage when he made his triumphant 
entry into Jerusalem before his crucifixion, as he responded to the chief scribes and or the chief priests and the scribes' criticism of the children who were praising him. In fact, let's go there. Let's read Matthew 21 verses 14 through 16. It says the blind and the lame came to him, him being Jesus at the temple, and and he healed them. And look what happened. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, he replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? Jesus was quoting this passage of scripture from the Psalms. And Jesus was agreeing with what David wrote in Psalm 8, that God could use the chatter or the, the praises of children to speak truth, and in doing so, bring glory to his name. You see, God doesn't require greatness of the person that's praising him, because he knows how great he is. It's not about us, it's about him. So he's saying, I'm okay with having children and infants praise me. Psalm 8 and 2 also tells us that God can use the praise of his children to silence their enemies. And that fits really well with a, a passage, another passage in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1 and 27 says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God demonstrates his glory through his ability to use naturally weak instruments to make known his name and conquer the enemies. You see, it's not about us. It's about him. It's not about our greatness or our power or our position. It's about who he is. And that's why David wrote what he wrote about how magnificent you are. You are you're greater than everything that I see around me. In all of your creation, it just makes me wonder how great you are. And I'm glad that it doesn't take somebody famous or powerful to praise God. I'm glad that we don't have to be someone special in the eyes of the world for God to be able to use us for amazing things. We just have to be willing to be used. God has created each of us for a purpose. Each of his most precious creation, that would be you and me, have a special purpose. We weren't created as a backup to someone else, just in case they didn't work out. We weren't created by mistake, and God just went, oh man, I can't believe this, and threw us off to the side. No, every one of us was created for a specific reason, for a specific purpose in God's great scheme and plan of things. God has a purpose for your life. You are an incredible individual creation of God himself. We're often so impressed when we, when we see some item that says, made by hand. And we go, ooh, wow, that's handmade. Or somebody makes some kind of a cake or something and, we, and they tell us it was made from scratch. And we are just so impressed by that. Let me assure you of something today. God handmade you from scratch for a specific purpose. Now that's impressive. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 5. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, 
What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. As David continues to, to gaze up into the heavens at the moon and the stars, his awe over the majesty and the power of God caused him to wonder out loud how the Lord of the universe, the very God that could put those stars there, how could he be concerned about me? What is man that you, you are mindful of him, Lord? Remember at the beginning of this, I said that that question, why me, Lord, has been asked for a long time? David asked it thousands of years ago. What is man that you're mindful of him? What, what am I that you would care about me? You're the God that created all of heaven and the earth, and you actually care about me? I don't get that. Compared to the vast expanse of, of the stars and the heavens, humanity seemed so insignificant to David. He wondered why would a God that was capable of, of hanging each little star like we hang little ornaments on the Christmas tree and stand back and so we're so impressed with ourselves, God hung all the stars that same way. I like this one here. Stand back and go, now let's move it over here a little bit. That same God loved David. And David was overwhelmed with that, saying, how could you, this magnificent God, be mindful of me? I'm sure, I know David had to feel that in comparison to these awesome sights, that God must have considered him to be just an insignificant speck of dust on the earth. And here's something even greater to think about. Today, we know a whole lot more about the vast heavens than David did. Back then, they didn't know that there were billions of miles in between some of those stars. Yet today, we know that we're just a small piece of the entire everything that's out there. So it should be that even for us today, a true appreciation of, of a God that is mighty enough to create stars that are trillions of miles apart should lead us to wonder why God would care for seemingly unimportant human beings on a relatively small planet. You see, in David's day, when you're standing on the earth and you're looking out there, everything seemed pretty tiny. But we know for a fact that the earth is pretty tiny compared to everything out there. And that should make us even think even more than David. How could you be mindful of me? Our planet is just a little tiny thing, and I'm just a little tiny thing on the planet, and you still care for me. That's awesome. And as David reflects on, on God's vast creation, he wonders aloud about the creation of man. What is man that you were mindful of him. In other words, why would you, the God of all of this, care about me? Then in verse 5, David writes, and he identifies the honor in which humanity was created. He acknowledges that we as men and women are not equal to God, but you have created us just a little bit lower than the angels. 
That means we are the prize creation of all God's other creation on the earth. That God has given us glory and dignity above all other created things on this earth. Wow. How cool is that? We are God's most precious creation. You are God's most precious, precious creation. And maybe you don't feel very special today, but be assured you are special to God. You are among God's most treasured creation, and that is men and women. We are not God's. I'm not saying that. But we are the ones that God conferred great dignity and honor upon, and that's us. And although mankind was, was marred by the fall of Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden, God's image that we were created in is still present in us. David doesn't stop there, though. Look at chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. That's us. We're him. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Besides creating humanity with, with a unique honor and dignity, God also gave us a place of dominion over all his creation. That indicates more than just a mere nominal control. I believe that God intended for men and women to rule over his animal creation and all the other natural forces on the earth. Now, I'm not going to get all tree huggerish here. But I will say that that means that we can't abuse the rest of creation. We have a responsibility to the rest of God's creation. Yet just because He has placed us over those things doesn't mean that we can go out and just destroy it. We're here to take care of it for Him. I know I'm not going green or anything. Just I'm not going there. Still... Contrary to the ideas of most humanistic thinking, men and women were specially created in a role of great dignity that far exceeds other created beings. God made us special. A lot of humanistic thought would say that, well, we're just all, animals are all the same and we're just all part of nature. No, David's saying here that God created us and put all these other things under us. Why? Because we're special. So having demonstrated God's majesty through this brief tour of God's created works, David repeats his original statement from verse 1 as a kind of conclusion in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It showed that David recognized that although God gave humanity great honor and dignity, that his name alone is majestic in all the earth. So I was studying this week. I started looking at some other instances that where God showed his great love for mankind. One of the greatest examples of God's love for humanity is found in the book of Jonah. 
The book of Jonah is really, it has some serious, very serious implications, but it's really kind of funny when you read it. I mean, it would make a really funny movie. In the first chapter of the book of Jonah, we see that God called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and preach. God said, Jonah, I want you to go down to Nineveh and preach and tell these people of their wickedness because if they don't change, I'm going to destroy them. Jonah didn't really want to do that. So he went down and got on a ship headed to the city of Tarshish, which is a different direction. That was just blatantly saying, God, I don't really care what you want. I'm not doing that. And he got on a ship and headed a different direction. You probably know the story. Once he was on the ship, God sent this great storm, and the men of the ship thought they were all going to die. And the sailors of the ship started throwing all the cargo over to lighten the load of the ship, but it didn't do any good. The ship was still on the verge of sinking. And it says specifically in the, in the book of Jonah that each man called out to his own God because they were afraid they were going to die. They weren't even in agreement of who was the God. They just all called out to their own gods. And they looked around and they didn't see Jonah. So they went looking for him. And they wanted him to call on his God too. Hey Jonah, you know, we're all calling on our God, so you, know, we, you need to call on your God too and maybe he'll come and, and fix this. So they go down below the deck and they find Jonah sound asleep in the middle of the storm. They told him to wake up and call on your God too. We're up here throwing stuff overboard. We're all calling on our own gods. You need to start calling on your God or we're all going to die. And then they went and did something that was kind of interesting. They went and cast lots to see who was responsible for all this mess that was going on. And the lot fell on Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. This is really cool. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Probably should have kept that to himself. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he declared. And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault and this great storm has come upon you. But instead of doing that, the men decided they'd try to row the ship back to shore. But the sea got even wilder, the Bible says. So finally they took Jonah up on his suggestion and they threw him overboard. In verse 17 it says that God provided a big fish to swallow Jonah. It doesn't say it was a whale. We like to believe it was. It says a big fish. And he was inside the fish for three days. And somebody would say, I thought you said this was a, a story of how God loves his people. Think about this now. It could have been just maybe easier for God for them to throw him overboard, 
let him drown, and go get somebody else to do what he originally said. But instead, God went to all this trouble to provide this great fish to be right there next to the boat when they threw Jonah overboard, this big fish swallowed him. Why? Because Jonah had a purpose. There was a specific purpose and a call on Jonah's life, and God said, I'm going to give you another chance, even though you're just kind of dumb. That's my version of it. So while inside the fish, Jonah prayed and asked God for forgiveness, and he vowed to do what God called him to do. And I will say, been there, done that. Then in Jonah 2.10, it says that the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That's right. So now we see Jonah has been... Three, three days inside this fish, but he's back on land, covered in fish vomit. And again, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach. And this time Jonah says, fine, okay, you made your point. I'll go. Nineveh was a big city. The, the Bible says that it took three days just to get through the city. It says a very important city, a visit required three days. It's a big city. So on the first day, Jonah starts preaching that if the people didn't change their way of life and their attitude towards God, that in 49 days they'd be destroyed. 40 days. Now here's the key to this whole story. Jonah secretly hoped they wouldn't change. Because he wanted God to destroy them. That, we find out, was his whole reason for not wanting to go to Nineveh because he thought they ought to be destroyed anyway. But finally, after this whole fish incident, he says, okay, I'll go to Nineveh and I'll preach. I just hope they don't listen. And so he starts preaching, if you don't change your ways, in 40 days God's going to destroy you. Yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. But he preached anyway. And much to Jonah's dismay or surprise, the king of Nineveh heard the preaching of Jonah and he commanded everyone to turn to God. He commanded that everyone give up their evil ways so that God would not destroy them. And the people did just that. And look what God did in verse 10. When God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. And we would say, boy, that's a great story. That's such a happy ending. I bet Jonah ran out and he was jumping up and down doing a little happy dance saying, look at all these people, they've, they've changed their ways. And you would think that he'd be rejoicing that they were spared because of his preaching, but no. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. 
Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is the short version. Great. This is why I ran away to start with, God, because I knew how compassionate and loving you were. And if I went and preached and they changed their ways, because of your love and compassion, you'd forgive them all and you wouldn't destroy them. And now I'm mad at you, so kill me. That's what he said. It's not what I wanted. I wanted you to destroy him. And God says to Jonah, Do you really think you have a reason to be angry? And Jonah just didn't have any words. And in so many words, the Bible says that he just stomped off to a place east of the city. He made himself a little shelter, and he sat down to pout, and just to see what was going to happen to the city. That's what it says. I wanted him destroyed, you didn't destroy him, and I said to kill me and you didn't kill me, so I'm just going to go build me a shelter and sit there and pout. Stay with me because we're getting to the really cool part here. Jonah 4 and 6. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it to grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. I got a vine. But then in verse 7 it says that the next morning that God provided a worm to chew on the vine and it withered up and died. told you this is a funny story. And then the sun comes out and it gets hot and Jonah starts getting sunburned and it says that he grew faint from the heat. And again, it got so hot that Jonah said, I just wish I'd die. It's so hot. But here's the good part. Jonah 4 and 9. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. This is a grown man. If he was five, we would see that that probably fits. But God is making a very important part, a point. Do you have a right to be angry about that vine? Yes, I do. I'm so angry I could just die. Then look at verse 10. But the Lord said... You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang overnight, sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. Jonah, you seem to be awfully concerned about this vine that you didn't have anything to do with. It was there for a day, and then it died, and you're all upset about it. But let me ask you a question, Jonah. This is my translation of what God says to Jonah. You're all upset about your little plant. Well, the city you wanted me to destroy, it has more than 120,000 people in it. 
And you were okay with me destroying that. Shouldn't I at least be concerned with them as much as you are over your little plant? You were so upset about a plant that you didn't have anything to do with. That was 120,000 people that you were okay if they died. And you're mourning a plant. In other words, Jonah, I love people that maybe you just don't care about. I love people that you just don't think deserve salvation. But see, Jonah, that's my decision. Because my love extends further than your imagination does. And for us today, we might wonder how God could ever love us. And the same answer applies. That His love extends further than our imagination does. And if we really think about it, we should be... So glad that that's the case. It also applies to those that we might consider unlovable. But be assured that His love extends to them further than our imagination does. Today's lesson focus is really about realizing how precious and valued we are by God. As we've looked at these things today, hopefully we've seen that not only how important we are to God, but also how important those around us are to God. See, sometimes we get part of that, that picture clear, clearly in our mind because we go, okay, I get it, God loves me. But we can't stop there because He also loves your next door neighbor. I've just got this little scene from a movie going through my head. Give me just a second. <laughs> we have to realize that we can be Jesus' hands and feet in this regard by showing others how much they are valued by God too. As with Jonah. God's want, God wants us to see that communicating to people how much they're valued to God often takes humility and sacrifice on our part. It might even involve us doing a few things that aren't especially comfortable or things that don't come naturally to us. I'm sorry that I've... It took me this long in my life to realize that. I know you'll find this hard to believe, but I'll be 50 next week. Everybody say, well, I thought he was like 25 or so. <laughs> but it has taken me this long to realize that we really are responsible to go out and show people that don't know that God loves them. 
But we can't do that if we don't first realize that God loves us. And when we are called to go, sometimes it won't be something that we really had a plan to go do. You go, well, I've just never done anything like that before. I understand that. I was talking to Daniel and Michelle this past Wednesday night. Daniel's going to be going, leaving next week to go to a, a, a class in Birmingham, Alabama. Daniel's a film student. And he's going to this specialized class on making videos and so forth. And one of the things that he's doing it for is to use it at High Point Church as an outreach so that we can do things that we've never done before. That we can reach out to people in a way that we've never reached out to them with before. And as we were talking, Ruthie reminded me about another thing that Daniel had responsibility for, and that was our church website and posting all these sermons so that people all over the world could listen to sermons from High Point Church. And we have, on the average, I think it's right around 70 downloads a day. A day. A day. From our website, not just people that clicked on the website, I'm talking that clicked on the website, went to the listen online, and clicked and downloaded a sermon. 70 people a day from all over the world. Pastor McGee, a couple years ago, he made the statement that he had gotten emails from these different ministers around the world. And he made the statement back then that I don't want us just to be going and, and spreading the gospel on, online. I believe that we should go out ourselves. Somebody from High Point Church should go out and preach and teach to those people. And I'm sure when I was sitting there that day, I was really had a big amen for someone else. And yet I find myself that in less than a month I'm going to a foreign country that I've never been to before and doing something that I have never done before. And I assure you it's not because of me. It's because I have finally realized that God does love me I have finally realized that God wants to use each of us to show his love to someone who might not know it. I have finally realized that sometimes we might have to get out of our little comfort zone a little bit to go and do that. And I would prefer to just do it when God calls me than to have to go through the whole big fish thing. There's an age-old question that has plagued mankind for centuries. It's the question of, why am I here? Could it be that pointing people in the direction of God's saving grace for humanity is an adequate response to this question? Why am I here? Share the love of Christ with someone. To realize that God loves me and then to take that realization and share it with somebody else so that now they know that God loves them.
And God places us in those situations just so we can do just that. You see, we're not, we're not called to decide who God wants to show his love to. Instead, we are simply called to go and share the gospel with the whole world. And if we really think about it, we should be glad that God is that way or he would have never accepted us. But the fact is, he has enough love for everyone. We don't have to ration it out for him. It's kind of like you see these people that have ten kids. And you wonder, how could they love all those kids? Well, they just find a way. They didn't run out like on the fifth one. And then the rest of them just don't get any love. No, God's the same way. He has plenty of love to go around. And it's not up to us who we get to ration it to because it's just us to go share the gospel. We are not worthy on our own. But we are God's most precious creation. And he loves us so much. He loved us enough that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for our sins. Jesus came and died for all of mankind He died in order to bear the punishment of all mankind so that we wouldn't have to. And all we have to do is accept that salvation because it's free to everyone. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever in this scripture includes you. And if you feel him speaking to your heart today, don't turn him away because he loves you. Why, you might ask? Because of all of God's creation, you are his greatest creation. God bless you.